0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Some have compared this psalm to a solar eclipse, where the sun is shining and then it is obscured. Until at the lowest point, it is almost completely dark. A little bit of light around the edge. I think it's called the corona. A little bit of light around the edge, but it is mostly remarkably dark. And then it begins to move away and the sun shines again. That's the pattern of, of Psalm 77. It's a good thing for us. Because it's going to show us some hope, but it's also helpful in that it's going to show us that it's okay to talk about and think about darkness. God is so aware that darkness happens in this life that he would write something like this. And it is, it is dark. At the bottom, it's dark. And he, and he so wants to connect with us and identify with that reality of life that he writes about this. But as we're going to see, actually a step beyond that. When he, when he comes to connect and, and identify with us in darkness, he does more than just write words on a page. He actually steps into the darkness himself personally. He steps into it, experiences it, to redeem from it. We'll get to that in a bit. But first, let me read the passage. I'm going to read all of Psalm 77 and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the details. This is Psalm 77. Verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, Or, as I think is more accurate, the footnote or the NAS. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 77. There are four sections of this psalm, like four stanzas of a hymn. And they go down and then come back up, and they, they go progressively dark in the first two. Verse 1 begins with the writer, obviously in need, yet optimistic. He says, I will cry aloud. I will cry aloud to God, literally, my voice to the Lord. He's talking to God, which is a good place to go, and he's very optimistic. And he will hear me. Faces some trouble, he's going to go to God, and God will hear him. It's the right place to go. And so he's there before God at night, reaching out to him ceaselessly with untiring hands. He's he's persistent in going there. A bit like you're thirsty, you go to a, a soda machine, you put in your three quarters for the 75 cent soda and nothing comes out. So you think, I must have miscounted. You put in another one, still nothing. Another one, still nothing. What's going on? Because, he says... When I remember God, help? No, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Nothing. Selah. A term selah again. We've seen this before. Selah appears in the Psalms repeatedly as a, a little pause. It's put in there intended to make us stop and kind of take something in for a moment and let us sink, let something sink into us. In the day of trouble, in the night of affliction, he goes to God, he cries out to him, he meditates, and nothing. Nothing but moaning and fainting, and my soul refuses to be comforted. Selah. Where is God? Well, verse 4, He's there. He's keeping my eyelids open, which is not helpful. What He's saying is that He's depriving me of sleep. The first hint we get of God's involvement is an apparently not helpful bit of involvement. He keeps me awake at night. I am so troubled that I cannot even speak. This is anguish. Me personally, I have not been to a point like this, but some of you have, and I've talked with people who use language like this. I can't sleep at night, and all day long, I'm catatonic. I'm cold and lifeless. I can't engage with people, and when night comes again, I can't sleep. I just can't wait for the day to come, and with the day, I can't wait for the night to come. This is bleak. This person fights to see the light, verses 5 and 6. He, he's engaging with God. He tries to remember back to God's past work, to remember back to the, to the days of old and remember what God has done for him and for the people in general. He tries to bring that song, that, that, that delightful past evidence of God, he tries to bring it into his current world. Gets his, his mind working on that, but what comes out is just despair. He he begins to think, ah, the good old days. And what happens is, not like now. God was active and isn't now. And the questions come up. He has spurned us now, turned away now. Is that going to be forever? Is He never again going to be favorable? Is His steadfast love gone? Is His compassion over? Is His grace ended? I've seen it in the past, but I look now, it's not here. Gone. Selah. Stop there and think. I I know of, but I see... And then verse 10. And notice something important here. Verse 10 is right in the middle of this poem. Verse 10 out of 20 verses, right after this Selah, but it's probably, even in your typeset, it's probably set off from verse 11 because there's a, there's a break right here. And when I read it, I read both. I wanted to read my translation consistently. But if you have the NAS or if you have the footnote in the ESV, you see that the literal translation is rendered, and I think that's most accurate in this, in this context. Literally, what it says is what the NAS says or what the footnote says. This is my grief. Literally, it's this is my piercing. This is my my sorrow, my moaning. In other words, here's the problem. The right hand of the Lord, the, the mighty, strong right hand of the Almighty has changed. Not for me, but against me. That's why he's anguished. That's my problem. I mean, it used to be about the stuff of life. The day of trouble started out with just circumstances, but now it's become even worse because God is not for me anymore. What do I do about that? He has spurned me and He has not held me in favor. and has not been gracious to me. That's my grief. And then in verse 11 inexplicably it begins to change. Look how similar 11 and 12 are to 5 and 6. There are similar words and similar concepts in those two sections. Up in 5 and 6 he says, I consider the days of old. I remember, meditate, search diligently. And in 11 and 12, I will remember, remember the wonders of old. Search Meditate, ponder, very similar ideas. He's doing similar things in these two sections. He's still wrestling in verses 11 and 12, which is a good thing, because for some reason or another it changes. It's a good thing he didn't give up. It's a good thing that at the bottom, in the midst of his grief, he did not stop. The point there we'll touch on later. He remembers, he keeps looking, and he finally sees something, the character of God. You are holy. Your way is holy. What God is great like our God. You are a holy God. You cannot break your promise. You cannot turn your back on those you have redeemed. And you have redeemed your people. You are a redeeming God. What, what grabs his attention, verses 14 and 15, the wonders, all the, the great works of God that are all about his redemption of his people. You can feel it beginning to, to lighten a little bit as we come to the third Selah. And then he moves in, in the fourth stanza, he moves into to the recounting of the, the, the acts of the Exodus, the water parting, the water in fear running away from God. You can see the thunder and the lightning on Mount Sinai. He's, he's alluding to events of the Exodus where God brought his people out. Hidden footsteps. It's a lesson there. I look back, God brought us out. We couldn't see those footsteps. He may be recalling, do you recall? How did they get to the Red Sea before God parted it? Pharaoh looked at it and said, "These people are lost and confused. They're wandering around, and look—they've pinned themselves backs against the Red Sea. Oops! Those were God's leadings by their leader Moses, who seemed confused, but was actually—it was actually God. All those events like that—that that it was actually God by the hand shepherding His people in a hidden way, to trouble and then through trouble." But he's at work in the world mightily, through human agents, shepherding his people like a flock of sheep. That's the psalm. It ends on a positive note with, with this image of God as shepherd of his flock. But it's dark in the middle. I'm going to make two observations from this psalm and tie them together at the end. And this is, this is one, of these, one of these psalms, and there's a lot of psalms in this section. Where it is possible that wherever you are right now in life, this sort of strikes you as kind of irrelevant. Because everything's going great for you. And you can't figure out why we want to talk about grief and hard stuff and suffering and whatnot. Well, let me encourage you that if that's you right now, give thanks to God for that fact because it won't stay. I don't know how to... Put that nicely, but the other shoe will fall. It will. But if that's you right now, give thanks to God, but let me encourage you that, that now is the time to think about this. It's very difficult to teach let me use a simple analogy with baseball playoffs are on right now. It is very difficult to teach hitting to somebody at bat in the middle of a playoff series. It'd be foolish. All of us, even those of us who don't know baseball know that, that's insane. To have somebody in, in a pressure situation in a baseball game at bat with the hitting coach out there trying to tell him what to do, nobody would do that. Similarly, when you're in the middle of this situation, that's not the time to first begin to think about it to try to then work out, what's God doing? Where is He? How am I to think about this when you're looking at the tragedy in front of you? Think about it now. Pay attention now. Work this through in your mind and heart now so that you have something then. If that's you or if that's someone else that you can help. So this, in some ways, this is this is very raw, but it, it might strike you as cold, and if that's, if that's the situation, then, then just take it as a logical thing you need to work on. But this is for us, all of us, no matter where we are in life right now. I'm going to make two observations. First one begins with God. Here's the first one. In the day of trouble, God is still your Redeemer. In the day of trouble, God is still your Redeemer. And by your, I'm talking about Christians. Very specifically, what I mean is people who have placed their faith, their trust only in Christ and His death on the cross to pay for your sins. Not people who who have an idea of who Jesus is and are trusting some combination of of his work and my work. Not that. That's not a Christian. People who trust only in Christ and his death on the cross, you're a Christian. That's the you that I'm referring to, and he is still your redeemer in the day of trouble. Let me work towards that by starting with the problem that's in the text, which is a problem that we all face. The day of trouble, verse 2, starts out with just stuff going on in life. Doesn't say what? Could be anything. I think some of the context of this of this series of psalms hints at what it would be, but it could be anything, and so it can apply to you. In the day of trouble. That's where it starts. And he's grieved over that, it's serious. But he goes to God, and that's when the problem gets compounded. Because what starts out as an issue with circumstances becomes a huge question about God. Where is he? He appears to have spurned. He actually is bringing trouble. He keeps my eyes open at night. He won't let me sleep. He has turned from compassion to anger. He is against me. That's a problem. Have you ever been there? Have you? Have been in this place where, where either the silence of God when you go to Him, or you connect a couple of logical dots and you realize He's actually in this? Have you been in that situation where you begin to have the issue that started it all kind of fades away, and now it's about God? Many of us have been there, and, and you will be there, because we, are, we have this kind of basic idea that God is supposed to be good. No matter who you are or what, where you're from, we have this basic idea. God is supposed to be kind. And then you open up the Bible and you see all kinds of stuff in it about the mercy of God and the love of God and the grace of God. He's supposed to be, even the Bible says, kind and loving and gracious and merciful, attentive and powerful and helpful to His people. As we define helpful, we assume that we understand what helpful and kind and good and loving actually is, and we expect it to be carried out in these situations. He would be helpful with my family. He would be helpful with my financial situation. Helpful with my health, which means he'd fix it. Certainly not bring the problem. Certainly not avoid or ignore or overlook the problem. And then you you have this problem and you go to him and you call out to him, silence. And you begin to wonder, where is he? Or even worse, why did he do this? Have you ever experienced that? You will. It's where the psalmist is in his trouble. And he tries to fight this with verses 5 and 6. is going back to consider God's past work. But it doesn't work, at least initially. Because all that he sees around him is, is God acting in a very difficult way. The psalmist's trouble and and perhaps it doesn't work because past things don't have as much traction as current stuff does right in front of our eyes. But there's something else for the psalmist. And, and this is going to be a little bit of a detour that's going to come back to us in an important way. So follow this. The psalmist also has a theological problem. This third book of the Psalms, written during the exile, many of these written during the exile are all about a larger issue of God turning away from his people. Do you remember the end of the book of Deuteronomy? All the sections about the curses? If you were here when we preached through Deuteronomy, we saw again and again and again God saying that if my people turn away and reject me, I will turn against them and pour out on them, not blessing but cursing. You remember that? The psalmist does. He's living it. And his fear is, his theological issue is, all that grace and compassion and love of God, has that been forever lost because we have finally broken the camel's back and his hand is against us forever? Have we come into that section of the law? Oh no. His compassion removed. And his wrath replacing it. Oh no. His problem, his grief, is that the right hand of the Most High is no longer for to deliver. His problem is that the right hand of the Most High theologically has now changed and is against him to curse. And all of the nation, oh no. The supreme power in all of the world is against Him. The sun is eclipsed. Oh no. There's a theological root to His concern here. And I I don't know everybody here, and I don't know all of your hearts, but that same theological root should be a concern for some of us. Because He is against you in your breaking of the law. Is that you? May God the Spirit speak to you if it is. The right hand of the Most High, the power in all of the creation, is against Some of us. I don't know who. It's not my job to to pronounce on you. It's my job to bring it up and point the reality out. Here's where this comes to, to all of us, though. Because for some of us, it is the reality that the hand of God is against you in your sin because you have no refuge from Him. But for the rest of us, we are suspicious of the fact. In those moments of trouble, when we go to God and we knock on the door and there's no answer, We are suspicious of the fact that at the very least, he is unconcerned, and perhaps he is against me. And so we ask those questions. I knock, there's no answer. Evidently, he has spurned me. Is that lasting? I cry out to him ceaselessly with my hands extended, and I get a slap. Is that... really? Is he, is he against me? Is he angry? We are suspicious of that. This is where our, our problem arises because we are in this psalm and in the midst of trouble we strongly suspect and fear and worry that God has left Even worse, is my enemy. And so we feel alone, like I've got to face this alone, or I have to face the power of the universe. Uh Uh-oh. We're in this psalm with the psalmist. We are in his theological problem with a very important twist. Keep thinking with me. We are not exactly in this psalm with the psalmist because we come to this psalm mediated to us through someone else. We come to this psalm after Christ has already come to this psalm. And so something very important is different for us. And this thing that is different, which I'm going to talk about in a second here, is what needs to be the answer to that that fear, that concern. Is God against me? When I knocked, He didn't answer? What does that say? This is the answer to that problem. All the Psalms are pointing first to Jesus at their core. They are revealing some aspect of His ministry. So read this and think about Jesus. Who on the day of His trouble goes to God the Father and holds out His hands to Him. What's the trouble? His family rejects Him. All of His neighbors laugh at Him and scorn Him. People lie about Him and slander Him and then lie in court and murder Him the day of his trouble. And he goes to God the Father and holds out His hands to Him at night ceaselessly in the garden and prays in great anguish, God, Father, help! Silence. You spurn me. Will you spurn me forever? You've turned away and in place of your compassion there is only anger as God the Father prepares to pour out on God the Son the cup of the fury of His wrath. His steadfast love moves aside. And all that God the Son finds in God the Father is anger. This is His grief at the right hand of of the One with whom He has had everlasting, perfect communion. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Trinity, has been forever past a perfect, loving, gracious community. There is no other God ever anywhere but the Trinity, and they have been perfect together, the one God forever past. And then at this moment, he finds the faith of his Father against him. This is his grief. The Father is out to please to, even the Scriptures say, crush him. Why? So that you, Christian, in the day of your trouble, can read verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable, and have a solid answer to say, no, He will not spurn forever. Has His steadfast love forever ceased? No, it has not. Are His promises at an end? No, they are not. Has he forgotten to be? No, he has not. Keep thinking with me. The psalmist asked this question from a theological problem in the Old Covenant. Has my sin, has our sin alienated us from God? And we in the New Covenant can say, no, it has not. Praise God. Praise God. This should be amazing to you. You need to think this through and see what Jesus has done in taking the wrath and the curse of God. Means that in your day of trouble, in, and it will come. It will. It will. And you will go knock on God's door and find no answer for the moment. And you will connect the dots and realize that if He could give me a job, which He did, He could take it away, which He did. You will read the Bible and you will realize the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He did this. He did this. That will happen to you. And in that moment you can say, but it is not from His spurning or from His anger. He has not forgotten His grace. He has not forgotten His compassion. He is that same God for me. So what of the trouble that He brings? It's His redemption. He is still your Redeemer. The one who redeems you from your sin to start with, the one who saves you, but let's, let's think a little more broadly about that. We do not hope to, I I hope, we do not hope to be content simply with being forgiven. Marvelous as that is, we aspire also to walk in holiness. To live day to day to day to day. More closely fastened to Him, more closely following Him. Finding Him to be the strength of our heart and our portion forever, to quote Psalm 73. To not walk in that hurts us. Wouldn't it be good for God to rescue us from that not walking with Him? It would be good for Him to do that, and He does that using countless circumstances in life. Let me try to make that more simple. His work of sanctification in our lives, Christian, his work of sanctification in your life, involves, often involves, hardship. If he loves you and wants to grow you in Christlikeness, he will bring hardship to you. And the cross says that it is not out of anger that it is not from a spurning, that it is not because He has forgotten to be gracious, but on the contrary, because He is gracious. Because He is showing His steadfast love to you, to mature you like a father matures a son. He is still your Redeemer in the day of trouble. Ironically, perhaps even most in the day of trouble. That's the first thing that Psalm 77 says to us. That in the day of trouble, He is still your Redeemer, even if you can't see His footsteps and can't figure out what He's doing. What He's doing is working to redeem you today. So then, the second observation what do we do with that? Here's the second point. In the day of trouble, faithfully continue to seek God. In the day of trouble, faithfully continue to seek God. Draw this initially from verse 2 where that's what the psalmist does. And he does it all the way throughout. I seek the Lord. He stretches out his hands tirelessly. He's meditating in 3 to 6. And though it doesn't work at first, nothing changes at first. He's still knocking and there's still no answer. But what happens in 11 and 12? The sun begins to shine again. And He's still seeking. There's a critical connection there. He's still knocking on the door. And finally, for some reason or another, at that time, the answer, the door opens. And He begins to see God again. There's determination there. He says in eleven twelve, I will do this. I will. I will. Several times he says that there. He, he is intent even at the bottom. He is intent on continuing to seek and remember and meditate. In the day of trouble, continue to seek Him. Now, I'm going to talk for a second about what and how, but before I go to there, I, I need to press the continually seek Him because this is so contrary to how we usually work it is most common for us to continually seek tangible solutions that's what we instinctively do we we see a problem and immediately we begin to think how can i solve that problem how can i solve that problem and we'll go looking for any, any, anywhere we think we can find an answer. And if maybe if God would be the answer to that, we'll go knock on His door once, maybe twice. No answer there? I'll go somewhere else. Instinctively, we function like that. Move on to more promising ground if we think there might be more promising ground somewhere else. Or if there is no promising ground. We look at the problem if it's large or serious, we collapse in fear and depression. Depression is a huge issue in our country, a huge issue in the state. For whatever reason, this state is among, sometimes at the top of official prescriptions that deal with medication prescriptions that deal with depression. Now, I'm not trying to ascribe why that is. I'm just stating a fact. But it's not just Utah. It's everywhere. Depression is the affliction of the day. Let me very carefully say something. As an aside here... I I want to acknowledge very carefully and very clearly, everybody hear this, please, there are some legitimate medical and physical causes of depression. A biblically committed medical doctor is the person you should talk to about them. Biblically committed doctor, not PhD, doctor. Okay, I've said that. Now, what should be equally obvious is that the Bible is full of, and this psalm contains someone that everybody and their brother would say is depressed. All over the Bible. My soul refuses to be comforted. I I take it he means longer than five minutes. My eyelids are open. I can't sleep at night. I'm so troubled I cannot speak. Everybody would say he's depressed, anxious, worried, because he is. (laughs) He is. And we should also acknowledge that this passage and countless others, the solution comes by spiritual means. By spiritual means. I already got my disclaimer out there, okay? By spiritual means. Because the problem that he's facing is one of the issues of my life, how do I interpret them and respond to them? Oh, and more than that, where's God in my life and how do I interpret and respond to that? That's the issue that he's facing. That's the issue that countless People are facing, maybe even us. You are responsible for what you think about. You are responsible for what you believe. You are responsible for what you let run through your mind. Which is why the Bible commands us to take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. Commands, not just advises or suggests. Because you are responsible. And whatever's running through your mind will have an effect. It, it does. It is unavoidable. Something comes in from out there Christian, you have to grab that and submit it to something else. Now, if you want to talk to your biblically committed medical doctor, do. I encourage you. Please do. I, I, am, I am not by any means grinding an axe against that. I'm encouraging you. But while you're going there, you're no, you're no less a spiritual being, even if there is a medical route to this. Do this then, too. We cannot permit ourselves to face a day of trouble. And after we've tried to exhaust the solutions out there, sit back and cease faithfully seeking God. You knocked once, twice He didn't answer? Okay, yes. Knock a third time and a fourth. Be a persistent widow and keep going. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes at the morning. And there will be a morning. Keep going. Continue to faithfully seek Him. So how? Well, what, to what does the text point us? Well, 11 and 12, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Remember the wonders of old. Ponder all your works. Meditate on your mighty deeds. The same stuff that didn't work up in 5 and 6, go to it. Now, we saw last week that he gave a nod to looking back and instead looked forward to the appointed time of the coming judgment and the hope of deliverance. We can do that too. Here the emphasis falls on looking back at what God has done to redeem. The mighty works, the wonders and the deeds of, of God that's come from His hand to redeem His people. We have far better stuff to look at than the psalmist had. We have the cross. My, the Bible is consistent on this. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is consistent on this. I could say this every week. I do say this every week. But is it not right there? I will remember the stuff you've done four times. And that's When the sun begins to shine, that's when it begins to lift as he sends his mind, I will, I will, I will. He faithfully is determined, I will take the thoughts that are out here that are bleak and hopeless, I will take them captive and I will, even at the bottom, even in the midst of my grief, I will set my mind on what you have done to redeem your people. And inexplicably, this time, it begins to lift. Our job is not to make it lift. Our job is in the I will. I will do what? I will set my mind and my heart on what God has done to redeem me. I will set my mind on God's work on the cross to redeem me. I will set my mind on, in short, the gospel. Not what I have done. That's not the gospel. Not on how good I am. That's not the gospel. I will set my mind on what He has done. And inexplicably I keep using that word it lifts at some point. The last thing I want to emphasize so that, that's the "what I set my mind on, but there's another thing that I've got to say that's in the, the, the word "inexplicably," because we, we cannot we, we cannot errantly believe that this is just about facts and information, and if we just knew them and remembered them, we'd be okay. We are spiritual beings. And what's tied up in the word inexplicable, the inexplicably, is that in verse 11, God decides to answer the door. Why in verse 11? I don't know. Maybe purely to give us Psalm 77, to help you work through something in your own life. I don't know why he waited till verse 11, but he did, and then he answered. So we are, we, we are a people who must be about truth, but it is mediated to us through God. It comes to us. It comes alive for us. It begins to shine in us when God says, let there be light. So, ultimately, what I'm talking about here is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, Christian. It is His job, God the Holy Spirit, it is His job to, to work in our hearts to open us, to see truth, and to believe it, and to hope in it, and to rejoice in it—it it is His job, and we we have to just cry out to Him. Spirit, help! Let me encourage you: don't be afraid of God the Spirit. I, I'm not talking about—I'm I'm not talking about wonders. Put it under a big word there. I, I'm not talking about miraculous, big gifts and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. We will talk about that when we come to 1 Corinthians. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about God the Spirit who illumines the Word into your life. Don't be afraid of Him. Ask Him. Spirit, have Your way with me. Give me life. Help me to see and to believe and to hope. We are in, Christian, you are in a a relationship with a person, God. Not a human being, but He's a personal God, not a force. You are in a relationship. And God the Spirit dwells inside of you. Yield to Him. There there isn't a formula. I'm just saying, give up. Spirit of God, have Your way in me. Help me to understand the Scripture. Help me to understand the work that You've done to redeem me. Help me to remember You in the midst of my day of trouble. To believe and to remain trusting you and not run off to other things. Help me, Spirit of God, to take this frightening thought that just leaped in my mind, to take it captive and submit it back under the Gospel. Spirit of God, help me to do that. Relate to Him like that. You're in a relationship. In the day of trouble, Christian, in the day of trouble, continue to to faithfully seek Him. If you tie these things together, what do you have? An exhortation to seek God faithfully, persistently, because He alone is your Redeemer. Let me pray.